Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of the Ethnographic Marginalia podcast series on the New Books Network. In this episode... Alex Diamond and I, Sneha Navarapu, are thrilled to be in conversation with Dr. Shahana Ghosh. Dr. Ghosh is a sociocultural anthropologist who works on the forms and experiences of inequality produced through the intersection of mobility, policing, and gender in contemporary South Asia. Her work is focused on borderland regions and in particular the Indo-Bangladesh border. Dr. Ghosh is currently working on her first book, which chronicles the slow transformation of a connected region into national borderlands and shows the foundational place of gender and sexuality in the meaning and management of threat and security in relation to mobility. This book recasts a singular focus on border fences and shows instead that post-colonial bordering materializes through multiple forms of violence and devaluation in agrarian borderland lives. She is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at National University of Singapore. We really enjoyed talking with Dr. Ghosh, and we are sure that you will enjoy the upcoming conversation in equal measure. Hi, Shahana. It's so great to have you on uh, Ethnographic Marginalia. I know we've been planning this for a while, so I'm really glad that uh, it's finally happening. Uh, Welcome, and we're so excited to chat with you today. Thank you, Sneha. Thank you very much, uh, Sneha and Alex, for the invitation. It's a real pleasure for me to be here uh, in this space, talking to the two of you, because I've been using ethnographic marginalia um, in my teaching this semester. So it's very much been a, a space and resource that's been on my mind. And I've been enjoying all the wonderful writing and recordings. So thank you for inviting me. We're honored. Thank you. Yeah, that makes us so uh, happy because we just like love the fact that our work is being used to used in the classroom in interesting uh, and innovative ways. Um, so let's get started with getting to know you a little better. Um, how did you become an anthropologist and what in particular drew you to ethnography? Hmm. 
So, you know, uh, that's a, um, it's always a good place to start with this question, because to be very honest, when I was an undergrad, I was an undergrad and uh, I have a master's degree in literature. And in that uh, life as a student of literature, I didn't I didn't know what ethnography was. I, you know, of course, knew of sociology, but not really um, uh, anthropology, social anthropology. I, I was a student in India and, you know, that kind of distinction, as you know, with the history uh, of the disciplines isn't very sharp. Um, anyway, so uh, it was really during my... Um, masters in literature at Jadavpur University in Calcutta, that it was a course in uh, literatures of the diaspora that uh, drew me, introduced me to um, ethnography and also very much to uh, the study of diaspora and uh, sort of migration mobility more broadly um i ended up doing i was i was blown away by that course very very inspiring uh, teacher uh, i was blown away by that course and i really wanted to um do a little study which i didn't know at that time was an ethnographic study of the very old armenian diaspora in calcutta so i ended up doing a you know small research project um with that uh, uh with the armenian community and I was hooked, you know, it was so much fun. And it was, uh, it, it was, and I kept saying, I remember to my professor at that time that I, I want to work with stories. And this is even better because they're real people and not just textual, um, uh, both, you know, storytelling in, in every kind of way. Right. So it was really, it was really that, uh, course in Yadavpur that was transformative for me and I um, you know wanted to know what this thing was where, who does ethnographies and what is ethnography and uh, you know where can I read a few more and um, yeah that's how I ended up uh, I was very much encouraged at that time by my uh, you know teachers and peers uh, to apply for uh, 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 another um a master's degree in an MPhil in um, anthropology, and I ended up doing uh, an MPhil in um, migration studies in the anthropology department at Oxford. And so that was really, you know, how I got introduced to ethnography and um, sort of started working uh, in that way. Mm-hmm. So interesting. So I like love the the journey that you've that you just talked about and I feel like I've known you for a few months now but I had no idea that this is how you became an anthropologist so it's, it's great to great to know this um, so in your work broadly speaking you study how mobility security and gender produce inequalities through a particular focus on borderlands and you show how policing and surveillance on the India Bangladesh borderlands manifests itself in ways that go beyond the border fence as a material artifact, right? So could you tell us a little bit more about the breadth of your research interests and how you started working on these topics? I assume that the these ideas germinated uh, during your MPhil at uh, Oxford. Um, could you tell us a little bit about yeah your intellectual journey, I guess, and how you started thinking about these topics? 
Sure, sure. Um, sure. So, you know, this, uh, I can pick up sort of at the point where I left off, which is that um, while I was doing um, my uh, MA in literature in Jadavpur in Calcutta, I used to work part-time as a social worker in an anti-trafficking organization. And um, uh, that is really what uh, took me to the borderlands for the very first time. I um, you know, would accompany, I was part of a team um, disseminating uh, sort of information about trafficking um, and working uh, against trafficking of uh, women and children. So visiting and um, uh, talking to people, various uh, parts of this anti-trafficking campaign in the border villages of West Bengal, uh, from which women and children were both trafficked, but which was also transit point for trafficking um, from Bangladesh. Um, and at the same time, I'd be doing some casework with uh, women and children um, uh, rescued uh, from at various points on their journey um, in India, uh, particularly in the East, in Eastern India. So, you know, my interest really, uh, as I was saying, you know, becoming very sort of discovering the um, power potential and uh, becoming very interested in, in in working sort of storytelling with, uh, with people developed very much alongside this you know, work that I was doing uh, as a part-time social worker in this particular uh, sector, right? And I ended up then uh, doing my MPhil research um, on the impact of these anti-trafficking campaigns on women's migrations for work. So my, you know, abiding interest really has been on gender and migration, on sort of gender, labor, migration, that intersection. Um that was both my introduction to the border, you know, to the borderlands. Um, and I, I think, you know, for it's very hard to it's sort of, I don't have a very uh, coherent or uh, I suppose formal, very planned uh, way in which I became, very serious way in which I became interested in these topics. I think one experience led to another. So this, you know, work as a social, this, this my experience as a social worker in this organization got me interested in um, not just trafficking, but sort of the, as I said, the impact of these kinds of interventions and campaigns on women's uh, migrations, what that means for their uh, status in their uh, rural communities, um, you know, when, once women become, uh, um, once women migrate and there are all these, uh, the, there's all this talk and fears about, um, you know, the dangers that they may, uh, their vulnerability and all the kinds of dangers that they may uh, encounter. And so you can probably guess, you know, I've always been uh, um, very committed to feminist uh, thinking and politics. And so, of course, I was very interested in how um, trafficking, migration um, impacts family relations, social uh, reproduction, you know, both in the family, sort of broadly in communities. Um, and so with, uh, you know, as I said, one thing led to another. I did this uh, this 
sort of smaller research project for my MPhil on um, women's labor migrations and uh, sort of the the uh, how anti-trafficking campaigns um, influence those experiences. And in doing that research, I became, I was spending more and more time in the borderlands, and this is in South Bengal, and, you know, started becoming introduced to um, other concerns in people's everyday lives there. Um, and so that was my introduction to illicit economies in the borderlands. Um, again, the ways in which those are gendered, um, how, uh, you know, instead of thinking of smugglers as kind of big bad figures who exist out there, they're, you know, perfectly ordinary people um, with perfectly ordinary families and embedded very much in all kinds of social relations, uh, familial relations across the border. And so again, you know, that very much drew me into thinking about um, these kinds of topics. Um, and that, you know, and given that these were um, the, the Bengal borderlands, especially are very, uh, are very agrarian areas, as a um, urban, very much an urban young woman, I it was also my introduction to rural life and to agrarian um, economies. And so I became very, very drawn into and interested in that and the ways in which, you know, all of these absolutely ordinary um, issues and experiences of social reproduction, of agrarian crisis, of illicit economies, of migration are very related to one another. So Many of my questions um, and interests grew out of sort of one being introduced to one thing after another and realizing that, well, this is actually related to that and that's related to uh, that broader context and so on. Shahan, it's, it's really interesting to hear sort of the, the trajectory of, of your research, starting with um, women, migrants and trafficking issue and being a social worker there. Um, because one, one thing that really stood out to me and that I love about your work is that you take on a, a bunch of different perspectives um, and study different sort of groups of people uh, to try to understand borderland policing um, and surveillance, thinking specifically of um, your wonderful article in American Anthropologist. Um, but, you know, you focus on the border security force, you're focusing on populations on both sides, you're, focus, you're focusing on the courts uh, as well, and, and other groups. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could tell us sort of, was, was this a plan from the start that you were going to sort of take this space and this issue of, of borderland policing and interrogate it from sort of all these different perspectives? Or, or how did your project develop to include all these different groups? Thank you, Alex. I'm smiling as I hear uh, this question. Uh, it's a great one. Um, there, that was, you know, uh, there was no that that was not a plan from the start. Let's just put it. Uh, let's just begin by saying that. Um, it rarely is. <laughs> yeah, and you know, one of the what you're uh, so kindly uh, noting as. Um, something that you enjoyed, the sort of different uh, perspectives and the, the, the variety of that was something I, as an ethnographer, the whole time I was doing, you know, for all of those years uh, that I was doing fieldwork um, on my PhD research, 
I very much, uh, you know, I was very anxious that that was a problem that I, you know, you hear all of these things, don't spread yourself too thin, be focused, depth. So all of these things were always buzzing around in my mind, right? Like, am I talking to too many people? Uh, Am I talking to enough of uh, too many people? Um, uh, You know, so those were always terrible anxieties for me. But really, you know, um, to get to your question of, how did the project develop to include all these different groups? Um, you know, one thing when I began the PhD, by the time I began my uh, PhD research, I had, you know, as I've said, I'd done this previous research. I'd also worked as a human rights uh, uh, worker uh, um, doing a sort of audit of the um I had been employed for a particular project to do a human rights audit of the India-Bangladesh border and of the um, extrajudicial cases of extrajudicial violence um, by law enforcement and security uh, forces on both sides of the border. So I had really spent over a year going up and down um, uh, the the both sides of the border. Uh, interviewing, conducting town halls uh, with people um, in in border towns and villages, right? So by the time I uh, began the PhD research, one thing I was very committed to was to do research on both sides. And um, I didn't want this to either be, you know, at the sort of India side of the story or Bangladesh side of the story or even a comparative one. So that thing I was very firm on is that I wanted to do research on both sides and my approach would be uh, in terms of connections. I was interested in um, mobility and I mean just the movement of people and goods and of connections, you know, the kinds of connections people had across the border. Um, And I wanted to sort of think of that as that was going to be my object. Uh, That's sort of all that I was really committed to and had a plan for. Now, uh, how was I going to do that? What exactly was I going to follow? And, uh, you know, what would those sites end end up being? I I really didn't know. And it was, um, you know, through being very anxious about am I, you know, am I following, you know, am I, am I trying to follow three different kinds of crops and uh, two different kinds of um, narcotic uh, substances? Am I trying to follow uh, kinship relations? Am I trying to follow, uh, you know, people like labor migrants? Am I trying to follow uh, five different kinds of uh, contraband goods? You know, what is it that I'm following? Um, Am I trying to follow information? Well, of what kind? These were all the kinds of decisions because, you know, all of these um, came up in my research as I was starting to live there, right? These were all part of people's lives. So one could choose to, uh, you know, one could settle on any of these. Um, And so for me, really, the the key question was... um, what I was going to follow uh, in terms of objects and connections, right? What kinds of connections? And once I started narrowing down on that in terms of um, these different uh, kinds of sites or uh, actors, I sort of went to where those objects took me. So for instance, if I was 
you know, one of the things that uh, became very, very prominent, and this was an ethnographic, this very much something that uh, I decided because it was so important, uh, it is so important in the borderlands, is this, uh, you know, the Bangladeshi, right? Bo- on both sides, the Bangladeshi migrant is, uh, you know, everybody is in the business, right? It's not just the police or the security forces, but uh, to to tell an Indian apart from a Bangladeshi is something that everybody is doing all the time, including the Indians and Bangladeshis themselves, right? So they're in the, you know, working in the fields and everybody's looking at, ah, that's that's an Indian one coming. And I'm like, how do you, how can you tell? What, what is going on? What am I missing? And, you know, so it would be really talking uh, with residents on both sides that they would, you know that they started pointing out clue they start saying oh you're carrying in bangladesh they would say oh you're carrying an indian sim card you're going to get into trouble and we like why and they'd say oh you know the the police really um they often stop and check to see if you have multiple sim cards in your phone so i was like huh so the police are really um checking for this stuff. People would talk about clothes and say, if you're wearing Bangladeshi clothes, then that's something that the judges in the courts are, uh, you know, you have a witness uh, who will point out and say. So, uh, you know, all kinds of, it were these kinds of markers. And um, uh, so, if, so in talking about the distinction of Bangladeshi Indian people in relation to migrants, um, I started identifying other sites and people in which these differences were becoming important, right? It was it was significant, such as the courts, such as the, uh, you know, being intercepted by the police in Bangladesh or the BSF in India. Um, and so that's how I start, you know, I sort of went, went where um, uh, things, you know, the things that I was, follow, was following um, that were important sites for those kinds of things. No, it's fascinating and really interesting to hear about how sort of this border policing marks daily life, um, which which is something you describe very well in your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think both Alex and I relate to this, I guess. Uh, I don't know, Alex, maybe I'm just speaking for you, but I know I felt very anxious in the field thinking that I'm spreading myself too thin, there are too many uh, you know, in quote, stakeholders in the in the research project, and Alex and I have also had conversations about that. Like how, um, I guess, what we often refer to as multi-sided fieldwork can be quite stressful as a grad student because uh, your one's idea or like this whole new new projects around patchwork ethnography are so helpful to think with because my work was also like not a neighborhood-based ethnography which sociology is so full of and it used to cause me a lot of anxiety so as you were speaking I was like oh my god yes I totally relate to this um yeah right right (laughs) yeah and I think you know I I've only um and you know, as with all fieldwork experiences, one is so immersed and everything feels important and everything, uh, you know, feels uh, both important and not enough, right? You want to know more. You think you, you, you one is constantly um, anxious about talking to more people or spending more time with people um, or in places. And I think the other, it, it was, it's, only me much later, really, over the years that I've, I think, become uh, comfortable with um, not just 
how much or how little I know about certain things, but just that unevenness and come to accept that as the nature of things rather than as a poor form of things. Many, I don't think this is, I mean, it's certainly not unique to me, but I think that the sort of other aspect, not just the unevenness of what I know about different things, but um, because I was doing research on in two countries, um, on two sides, um, I had this other, and, and this had been, I don't know where I really got it from, but I think various kinds of uh, grant reviews or maybe imaginary voices to a certain extent. Uh, I, I was really um, worried about um, my research on the Indian side and on the Bangladeshi side being equal, right? So I was kind of uh, very, very anxious and worried in, and everything. I, I Again, I realized much later, I was still doing fieldwork, but it was a few couple years into doing fieldwork that I uh, kind of caught myself doing that. And I think I I started being more comfortable with the nature of my research, which is that I, I everything from my research and design, I would be planning exactly the same amount of time, trying to talk to exactly the same types of people on both sides and so on. Um, and eventually, I, you know, gave up, gave that up. Not just because that was that was absolute for all kinds of reasons that I'm happy to talk about a bit more, um, were not feasible. But also, I, I realized this is an absurd chase. Why? Who? Why should I be doing that? And um, yeah, so I think ideas of what uh, depth or um, you know, sort of, even as we know our work and knowledge is partial and situated, you know, certain, uh, I think we have to work so hard to uh, be more comfortable with exactly how partial and how incomplete what we know is invariably going to be like that, the the nature in, in particular ways for each of us, that kind of incompleteness, I think is very important to actually reckon with and um, own up to yeah, and I like how you use the word uneven. I think that is a it, it's hits the nail on the head. I think it's not just partial. It, within that partiality, there's a certain unevenness of sorts. Uh, very interesting. I mean, I feel like the other issue in disciplines, at least like Soch, is that uh, I'm even though I like push back against quantified. Uh, like quantification it just kind of bleeds into questions around legitimacy of fieldwork like how long did you spend in the field how many people did you talk to how long were your interviews it's always this kind of measurement which makes very little sense in uh, ethnographic work but anyway yeah i mean another sort of uh, you know related slightly uh, related conversation i think very much in anthropology at least is, uh, you know, in terms of defining the number of interviews, the period of time. I mean, I can tell you the, the, when the, the sort of defined period of time for which, you know, I had, let's say, funding, or I had, that was the sort of official period of my, you know, extensive fieldwork that I was living there at the, you know, living in the borderlands in, in, on both sides, um, at a stretch. However, um, as several anthropologists note, they return to these places multiple times, right? We develop relationships uh, with people. I, you know, talk to them. 
quite regularly as I do with friends. Um, so I, you know, even over the pandemic years, I've been very much uh, keeping in touch as I would with people in my life um, with what's going on. So, you know, the question of when do you both stop doing field work and when do, con- you know, your engagements uh start and stop being interviews i think is a uh, is pretty fuzzy and i think uh, very much in this is very much a conversation in anthropology so there's there's i absolutely am all for being um you know trans not just transparent but having a very um uh how should i say comprehensive discussion about methodology but i think uh, and methods used and you know people use different kinds of methods for different parts of their work and you know we should be um happy to talk about that but uh, i think talking about methods should not be a kind of token disclosure i think talking about methods as in fact the two of you have made space for in this uh in in ethnographic marginalia should be much more integral to the practice of ethnography and the kinds of knowledges we can or cannot uh uh you know produce through it right mm-hmm. um yeah very very true and uh, speaking of um i guess speaking of ethnographic methods as we are in this entire conversation of course but i was i know i know that you've done some ethnographic work with the border security force in the past and i know your next project to some degree is also engaging with border security force but i imagine that working closely with this particular arm of the state must must be you know uh, an emotionally charged experience maybe um, yeah and like i guess generally working in regions that are heavily surveilled and uh, to some extent militarized uh, it must have um, must have been some sort of an experience right i can only imagine uh, could you speak a little bit about what what it was like in terms of emotions like doing work in in militarized regions sure sure so uh, you know i didn't again i didn't uh, this perhaps was the least um uh developed part of my research intentions when i began the project when i began field work partly because uh you know as i mentioned i've been working as a human rights worker uh uh on issues of human rights violations along this border and for me the uh indian bsf was very much the villain of the piece um and you know i was i had been investigating the extent to which the uh, bangladeshi um, security forces the bgb was also you know the role they played in the borderlands but it, it was very much i very much approached um my field work in the borderlands as these are not people i want to spend very much time with and uh, i very much, i i'm interested in the ways that residents negotiate militarization and to that extent uh i imagine i will encounter um security forces on both sides and you know i'll sure i'll talk to them if and when the opportunities present themselves but this was not something i had um um planned or i went it's not really something i went looking for it very quickly um in in kind of somewhat contradictory ways uh presented itself as 
inevitable to me. So one was that I immediately started being, uh, you know, surveilled and I became more person of interest um, on both sides. You can imagine, right? A, a youngish appearing woman uh, by herself uh, shows up and starts living in these villages. She has a Hindu sounding name, but she's living in a Muslim household. She's obviously urban of a different, uh, you know, class background what is she doing here now everybody including residents to begin with had theories about who i was and you know which country spy i was and you know what was i doing um there um and so in also becoming an object of suspicion myself i i i kind of had to engage with the security forces on both sides and that was quite um it was very unnerving and it was very frustrating, again, for very different reasons. So on the, uh, you know, Indian side, there was uh, some ways in which I could take. And again, these are all the sort of um, not just practicalities, but politics of research that I think one, you know, should really, we should all try to talk about uh, um, more uh, thoughtfully. Uh, which is that as a citizen on the Indian side, there were ways in which I could engage the security forces when I was being surveilled or challenged or, you know, interrogated or uh, detained that I couldn't on the Bangladeshi side um, as, you know, uh, as, a, as a visitor in that country and as a foreigner doing research in that country. So there was that element to it. Um, so, yes, absolutely. You know, emotionally, it was it, it began by being very. Uh, frustrating and unnerving. Um, but uh, again, after a while, um, I didn't find, you know, many of my assumptions about the security forces as very clear villains um, and and that there would I would find, and in fact, I would find and document an antagonistic relationship, which is very much what I kind of imagined I would be doing between security forces and residents. I didn't find that. That was not the case. In, to the contrary, I found, you know, people hanging out at tea shops, people, uh, men and women engaging um, with the security forces, with all kinds of relationships, right? Uh, and that really did took, take me by surprise. And uh, so while there was that kind of, uh, you know, socializing and sociality, uh, on the one hand, there was also not the kind of antagonism and organizing and protests um, that I expected to find. And so I, I was quite perplexed. Every time I would, you know, see a clear violation of some kind of civil rights, I, I'd be like, shouldn't we do something? Shouldn't we, you know, go and gather or, uh, you know, what should we do? And I mean, I've, this people encounter this every day when it's a part of your everyday life then uh, in in militarized areas um again i very quickly realized that what militarization looks like and this is something i i write about um and i've begun to write about much much more centrally is that militarization looks very different in different places and it doesn't take the same sort of antagonistic um clearly explicitly uh, you know sort of oppressive or um kind of hostile forms uh, including hostile social forms in all places so actually beginning to 
learn and recognize the relationships through which people encountered militarization and the security presence um has been integral to my ethnographic writing and one one thing that i found uh striking in your work was you're not just describing you know how other people uh and in what you just said in fact you're not just describing how other people experienced militarization and you know they even internalized and, and sort of ended up figuring out how to how to present themselves given the the militarization of uh of the border, but you also talked about, um, you know, what you just said, how you became an object of suspicion um, and how you had to engage security forces differently uh, on both sides of the border. Um, so I wanted to ask about about that and, and sort of the, uh, this, uh, I don't know that I like this phrasing, but sort of the, the analytical leverage that this gave you in writing, not just about what you observed or what you talked about, um, with people who live full time on the border, but also um, your own experiences and and sort of what you got from from talking about the what you describe as like a, a gendered and class performance um, that you had to put on uh, when you dealt with border security forces. Yeah, so you know, as I as I began to uh, say that uh, this was unavoidable and. Um, it was not really, and the reason why I think um, I think it's a central part of the uh, of my writing and my analysis is actually uh, because I was, um, you know, I experienced uh, when I began doing fieldwork, I experienced suspicion um, from everyone, and and understandably so, right? So. Unlike a lot of uh, you know fellow ethnographers of borderland areas, who um, especially those who work on the India-Pakistan border, um, so many. While I was doing fieldwork, you know, just as just quick aside, Alex, I, I promise I'll tell you a little bit more about what you asked. You know, one of the things um, fellow ethnographers would always uh, tell me is that it's impossible to do research with the um, security forces or police in these border areas uh, is if one is to you know win and retain the trust of uh, local residents you know why would local residents trust you if they um, you know see or sense that you are uh, hanging out with or equally comfortable or at least somewhat comfortable with um, you know with people uh, from whom they experience uh, a great deal of surveillance um, and sort of all kinds of disruptions, uh, all kinds of violent disruptions in their everyday life, right? And so, I, I, I this is something I, you know, this is a question that uh, really stuck with me because it was clear that in trying to do research with both residents and you know, once I began encountering the security forces, actually hanging, you know, talking to them, um, I found that I did have to negotiate this this kind of suspicion and question from both, right? And in uh, the two things I I, I want to uh, flag about this experience that, again, you know, to situate oneself. 
um, methodologically in terms of positionality, uh, which is you know which is commonplace in in anthro in, in anthropology and ethnographic writing. Um, I really realized it, for me could not be something that was uh, kind of just confined to the introduction or to a preface or, you know, just describing this is who I am, this is how I was perceived and all my, everything that follows is informed by that. Far from it, actually, all of the um, uh, ways in which I navigated the space of the borderlands, the kinds of relationships I had, the kind of experiences I had, right, whether they were, um, uh, you know, stressful or anxious or whether uh, they were fun and the, uh, that is the, the the sort of second aspect that I wanted to uh, flag which is that um, you know one often chooses makes all kinds of fieldwork decisions and this is also something we uh, you know talk uh, very little about is the the reasons why we make all kinds of decisions and they're not uh, all very lofty, uh, you know, theoretical abstract decisions at all. We make decisions about where we want to spend more time, who we want to spend more time with, what, uh, you know, the choices we make in terms of what we study uh, based on not just safety and comfort, uh, you know, depending on our differently gendered, um, classed, raced bodies, but also on what is pleasurable and enjoyable, right? And so it would be very unfair if I only talked about the kinds of uh, suspicion or encounters, sort of unpleasant encounters. Those, I would say, in the larger scheme of things were a very small part. Um, I ended up, uh, you know, choosing a lot of, um, uh, you know, making decisions sort of everyday fieldwork decisions um, uh, based on a kind of uh, a network of female friendships that I was surrounded by. I, you know, ended up uh, doing a lot of um, accompanying a network, even though I don't study health, I ended up uh, studying, uh, sort of working with a network of um, rural health workers, and they're all female. Um, they walk these border paths on the Indian side, um, and uh, teachers and health workers also on the Bangladeshi side. Uh, you know, they walk, they're field workers themselves, right? So they walk these, uh, these border paths, go across these villages, visit families um, every day for their work, and they encounter. Uh, different paths, different security forces, each other's gazes and suspicions, right, um, every day. And so it was really in uh, walking these paths with them that questions of gender and sexuality, uh, again, were not kind of research questions that I was asking people, but it was uh, it was a very much an embodied experience that um, was the sort of lens or mirror through which we experienced uh, you know the space and our days right so they would um we were constant not only were we constantly being read according to our uh uh you know bodily appearances but very quickly i was co-opted into all kinds of you know uh, forbidden loves and uh, sexual fantasies of all kinds of people and being you know put on the spot constantly about my own uh, both locally and otherwise right so it's really these kinds of um being 
honest about the kinds of you know what one's field uh, looks like and what one's um, what one can see and cannot from one's own experience i think is uh, um, central to the kinds of analysis we uh, end up doing and the kinds of questions we find uh, important this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, that's, that's so beautifully and eloquently put. I was, uh, yeah, I, I didn't even realize when you stopped talking because I was like nodding my head along to everything you were saying. Very, very uh, interesting, Shana. Um, moving on to the various other sorts of innovations that you 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 know you bring in terms of um, thinking about your work, you do use visual materials a lot. I know you take wonderful photographs. I've seen a few and I've just been stunned by how uh, gorgeous they are. So I know that you use and leverage the affordances of visual anthropology in your work. So what, in your opinion, does visual anth offer to? knowledge production and how has it helped you in your own research and writing? Yeah, thank you, Saya. This is a difficult question, you know, uh, because um, I've had a, a photographic, uh, amateur photographic practice from when I was an undergrad student. And uh, I very foolishly, uh, and I think quite thoughtlessly, uh, began uh, uh, ethnographic research in the borderlands for my in my in the phd uh, research i showed up with a you know big dslr camera and i uh, the extent of my thinking about it was you know i'll take pictures and i was just it was very quickly very clear that that was not walking around with this big camera and pointing it at things would be impossible and so um Rather than uh, uh, thinking about this as a lack or as a barrier, uh, I mean, I, I I almost never used the the big the you know the DSLR camera, but I did, and I I continue to take pictures um, on my phone, and uh, I continue to take pictures at times that other people were taking pictures, right? And so for me, um, two things happened. One, um, my photographic practice itself became a kind of diagnostic in fieldwork. And I think that is something visual anthropology that I I think two things visual anthropology, I mean, the many things visual anthropology offers um, in the way I've uh, sort of used it and thought about it um, is twofold. One that you know, f- photographic practice itself, um, uh, given the nature of uh, research, given the kind of gaze of the camera, the 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 sort of associations with policing, surveillance, information gathering, uh, that cameras and looking you know visual records um have um 
for me, it became interesting to kind of track what I could uh, take pictures of openly and what I couldn't, what, you know, both I and others were literally hiding to take pictures of, right? So whether it was uh, at uh, patrols or checkpoints or um, in the Bangladesh side, for instance, I remember this this sort of aspect became very clear to me at one moment when I was doing research, you know, I was doing a bunch of interviews and hanging out with tobacco farmers. And this is an old tobacco growing region. And in on the Bangladesh side, much of the older uh, kinds of tobacco um, cultivation have has been replaced now by this contract farming of a particular kind of tobacco uh, by, uh, you know, with this big uh, corporation, tobacco corporation. And uh, I thought this was the most, this has nothing really to do with the border at all. So I was hanging out talking, uh, you know, there were agricultural extension workers and there were, uh, on several occasions, there were members from the company uh, with whom these farmers had contracts uh, present. And so I would take pictures of the uh, fields of their, you know, various pro- uh, parts, you know, drying the leaves, bundling them, basically of the labor practices around surrounding tobacco cultivation. And these um, uh, agents from the tobacco company was furious and was, I mean, much more upset, actually, than any security force uh, personnel has ever been when I've, if and when I've been caught taking a picture. And you know, so that in that moment, it was very, very, uh, it really made me pause to think about um, what is, to think about what is sensitive in these kinds of spaces is actually not a uh, settled question. And so for me, photographic practice, what people want to take pictures of, residents themselves, and what is prohibited and what is, you know, kind of taboo or uh, you need to you know, kind of angle yourself behind your friend and take a picture over their shoulder so that part of the shoulder is, you know, horribly in the picture, that type of, uh, you know, or you're in a, on the back of a bike and your picture is, of course, going to be very uh, wobbly and grainy. So, you know, I really started um, not looking down as I had previously as a photographer uh, on grainy pictures, on shaken pictures, on wobbly pictures, on all kinds of pictures like that. And that's the second part that I think visual anthropology really offers. And I'm very much inspired by a number of practitioners in anthropology who are really centering conversations about collaboration, about ethics, about, you know, sort of really um, undoing and rethinking the power of the camera which is to recognize that people everywhere are knowledge producers themselves, right? We know that. But one of the things that makes it so apparent is in image making. People are constantly taking and sharing pictures and videos as well. But like, let's let's stick with images. And so to take that seriously was something, uh, you know, is something I, I've been doing. Um, so sort of these two combined, I think, uh, um, is how I've been thinking about uh, visuality and what what does it mean to you know picture borders, borderlands, the experience, the very embodied sensory experiences, you know, of surveillance, um, which are not necessarily uh, visible. Actually, they're not in a particular thing, but um, 
there are much more moments, there are experiences of, uh, you know, short and long travel. So how, how do people sense them? How do people record that for themselves? Um, those are some of the questions with which I've been engaging image making. That's really, really interesting. And I share uh, similar feelings about blurry, uh, grainy pictures, considering many of my own photographs yeah. are, are all over the place at weird angles because suddenly the, the bike went over a pothole or the auto rickshaw went over a, a, a speed bump or something like that. And even I've been thinking similarly about these images as not just being like initially I just was like, oh, they're not pretty enough to be actually a part of any you know presentation or a potential book but i do think now they're very central because they are telling their their diagnostic as you uh, as you said thanks yeah yeah right and they you know they bear um traces of their making yeah. right they're they're such uh yeah not to be too corny but uh Okay, I will refrain from being corny, but they, let's just say they have traces. <laughs> what is this corny? I was about to say a picture is worth a thousand words, but uh, <laughs> you know what a thousand, I mean. Um, theories or something, maybe. Yes, a picture is worth a thousand theories. That should be the title of something. Sorry, I, I loved your point, Shahana, about um, in similar ways that the people have written about the ethnographer as being disruptive of a, of a social world and like thinking about how we disrupt the, the communities or the, the, the places that we study as, as not necessarily a problem, but actually as productive. Um, the, the way you made that point about the camera, like what you're able to take pictures of or how people react as actually you know, having, having real insight. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, uh, I love the, uh, is that some drilling going on behind you? I think this podcast will bear the traces of its making as well. That's wonderful. That's what I was going to say. This is the, the, the auditory blur. Yes. Uh, someone is using power trolls. I, I apologize. <laughs> oh, Alex. The power drill has got to do what the power drill has got to do. Drill has got to do. But Alex, you yourself use uh, photographs and uh, videos in your work. So I know that you're probably curiously making notes as Shahana was speaking. I am. I am. No, and it's there, there's a great sort of symmetry with the, the last podcast we recorded, which, which was with Jason de Leon and was about also mm. photographs and also migrant experiences. Um, so I feel mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I'm I'm getting all this wonderful wonderful insight and ideas and um, and yeah I I actually was filming uh, like a mini a mini strike or mobilization yesterday where people mm-hmm. were refusing to leave a, a municipal office until they were given resources they'd been promised and you know mm-hmm, being there mm-hmm. filming which is actually for a documentary but it you know it was very clear that my presence was really affecting how um, sort of these state, not officials, but like contractors were treating the, the people who right. were demanding the resources. So it, what you said just just really made me think of that. Um, and it definitely right. an interesting right. and point. I, that, that was, uh, uh, that's absolutely, Alex, uh, the sort of role you end up, you know, what you just shared about 
the role you ended up you have ended up playing i think that's also an aspect of our research um, of field work right that we end up uh, often writing letters or taking pictures and i you know i didn't uh, mention that but sort of one of the thing actually one of the few um, uses to which my big fat camera could be put was at uh, you know when i was tracing um uh families borderland families on both sides and really kind of in, in including sort of branches or parts of families that hadn't been in touch with each other uh for decades um um one of the things i started i, I was i was requested to i you know i was well summoned to do most of the times was come take a picture of this person and then you know when next time when you go to bangladesh uh you know show them or and vice versa right like so um often being called to take pictures of people and share them with one another um uh, yeah they were kind of different different yeah different ways in which i think um uh one can one becomes uh, sort of involved right in the uh, image making practices and they they mean very different things they can be kind of um more activism or instrumental for demanding resources or evidence of some kind of um event holding some uh, accountability or you know these kinds of familiar very important meaningful familial practices as well definitely definitely um well shahana i think i i certainly am and i assume by now all of our listeners uh have had their their appetites wetted to uh to read a book from you um if i understand correctly you're you're in the process of turning sort of your your dissertation um into a book uh so how is that going and um and like what does that process look like for people like like me and sneha who are either doing that or will or will have to do that god uh, this is a dreadful question i must confess um you know yes i am of course you know uh, we all do but i don't have i never have an answer to this type of question um uh, the the process is difficult these are my wise words uh it's uh, uh long and different for everyone <laughs> i i don't mean to be facetious but uh, seriously uh jokes apart i think you know people think and arrive at uh, their revelations very differently so i far be it uh, you know uh, for me to be prescriptive in any way about how or what to do but you know i think for me um my i i, I sort of regard my dissertation as a kind of repository of a lot of ethnographic material and some of which i made sense of somewhat and a lot of which i didn't really i don't think made sense of and i, I and i think writing the book um has been an enormous uh, opportunity to return to those you know return to that dissertation as a sort of this this kind of repository and try and kind of think of uh what kinds of stories for me the process has been figuring out what story about the borderlands about um 
militarization and these particular in you know what i call the friendly borderlands of south asia um uh, what kind of story i don't want to tell and that's easier <laughs> figuring out than answering for oneself well but then what do i want this to be a story about and so actually it's been figuring that out that's been um the hardest uh but you know i i i'm the sort of person who writes my way through things so uh i typically begin with writing the the kinds of uh stories or topics uh discussions i really want to have and um feel very strongly about and sort of i'm i'm very certain about this i'm going to write this part of it first and then i sort of um it's not a very you know sensible or uh time efficient way uh, i suppose so yeah to return to how i began this is a i i question i dread cuz i do, i don't really know how to turn thing into a book i have turned it into a book but um i think with the full knowledge that i'm continuing to you know even the things i uh, write about especially particular stories uh you know experiences phenomena practices i'm still making sense of them and and i think my own uh kind of strategy for uh uh some sanity and uh you know um not being paralyzed is to just tell myself that you know the book is also a kind of part of one's work in progress on these uh on on these topics and uh, in these places so if that helps yeah that's that's very it's very helpful for someone like me i think to also just hear in these broad terms um, how to think about and how to approach uh, book writing it's uh, otherwise quite um, overwhelming to to think about but speaking of books uh, i'm going to ask my most favorite question that love, i love getting various responses to but what are your favorite ethnographies to date <laughs> mm very mischievous questions neha do you the the two of you have saved these uh, you know uh these questions for the very end right you, you got me um yeah so a very hard question to answer i love so many of them but you know there are a couple especially again you know I'll, as you asked um how has it been for me to turn this dissertation into a book i i've had in mind not only what kind of stories um i definitely don't want to tell and how i do want to tell it but also part of that figuring out has been to really sit with some of my favorite ethnographies so i actually you know other times may not have had an answer ready answer to this but i have been returning to um a couple a lot uh in terms of um what i do want my ethnographic theorizing and uh, um storytelling to be like so one is all time favorite is lela bulugod's writing women's worlds uh i love it i returned to it uh, i returned to it a lot uh, it was also one of the first ethnographies i read uh you know back when i was uh you know trying to figure out what is this ethno- ethnography business uh, and i was just you know blown away by it and um it it has i've read it 
countless times over the over the years now the another one that you know i've been holding very close it's right on my desk right now as we speak is amy cox's shapeshifters um it's not just uh, you know stunningly written and so smart and so uh, rich but what i particularly appreciate um and i've learned from that ethnography and i really really hold close it's its ability to uh you know not reduce experience in either uh in terms of either struggle or abjection right but to really be able to um bring out the ways in which fun pleasure uh, levity are uh, uh you know all kinds of creative ways in which people um and in her case uh the the young women in detroit are um manage uh you know all of their lives and um uh, live a life of uh, care and love and yeah i think some of my favorite ethnographies are those that um that are really able to depict the very uh, you know that no a uh, person position experience is an innocent one and there's always these kinds of uh um uh, murky blurry um sort of the tinges around experiences of struggle or of um uh you know or the really the, there is no romance of resistance as lila bulugod would say so um uh, those are some of my favorite ethnographies i i read reread quite often those yeah those are wonderful recommendations i was uh, jotting down the the shapeshifters book which i haven't read um uh so a uh, a final question shahana and um it sounds like you you're you're busy enough but um but what uh what kind of new projects are you working on now and what what can we hope to read from you in the future when i'm uh you know i've recovered from having written a book uh if ever um who yeah um i don't know uh, i just I, you know if i honestly um if i could i would just i would not write i think i would just keep doing uh, field work um i have you know there's so many ideas and uh uh I mean, so many different things feel necessary and urgent. I, I really wouldn't, especially in these very uh, academic ways. I wouldn't um, write if one didn't uh, have to. But uh, I, I can, um, you know, one of the uh, enjoyable, very collaborative, uh, collective things I've been working on is a uh, is with a group of um, really brilliant, uh, inspiring. anthropologists on so we have a sort of working group called which is thinking about um geopolitics as an ethnographic object um everybody does you know research in different parts of the world on very different topics but we've all been collectively you know over a, a more than a year now um thinking reading and starting to write small pieces about uh you know this this thing called geopolitics and the geopolitical right so where is it what what does it look like who are its actors what constitutes its proper um uh 
you know, what is the stuff of geopolitics? Um, and this is something, you know, as I, as I sort of mentioned a bit more, a, a bit earlier in my work, I've um, really thought, been thinking quite a lot, uh, and I write a bit about what um, friendliness really means, uh, a friendly border, you know, what does friendship mean uh, between states, between, um, you know, neighbors, between neighboring villages, right? So what does it mean? What does the quality of friendliness um, uh, mean at different scales? Um, and of course, this is a word and a quality that's bandied about in, you know, geopolitics of all kinds, especially in South Asia, right? Uh, friendly uh, relations, you know, sort of bilateral relations as um, in terms of friendship. So that's something I've been thinking uh, I, I am uh, writing um, a bit about is uh, um, who, de- you know, who uh, kind of defines um, these kinds of bio- uh, geopolitical relations uh, in these kinds of affective and relational terms and what does it look like if we were to take that as an ethnographic object? How is it um, performed, uh, felt, uh, made credible, contested. Um, so, in terms of the India-Bangladesh uh, relationship as a as a friendly uh, um, uh, geopolitical relationship in the region, that's something I've been um, working on. So, let's see. Maybe I will have some uh, fun stories through which to uh, you know think about uh, geopolitics. Um, I think if you do have thoughts that, you know, you just said that maybe academic modes of writing isn't uh, on, isn't your favorite thing to do right now, you should consider sending something, something to ethnographic marginalia, we would be more than happy to, uh, you know, work with you on some really poetic, thoughtful um, essay of sorts, if, if, you know, something comes to mind. Yeah, thank you for the uh, for that invitation for the reminder. I mean, you, you it's I'm really uh, hats off to you two for having created the space. It's such a, a treasure trove. There's such a lot of um, uh, you know wonderful pieces and inspiring ones that, as you say, you know it's it's not just a, a pleasure to read when one is taking a break uh, from <laughs> academic. Uh, reading but uh, sure i will absolutely keep that in mind um and i think you know spaces like this are also reminders that um you know if we are to really uh democratize and rethink the ethics and politics of our academic practices and one very good place to start is to uh you know make our writing uh lucid and accessible and to you know sort of question capital T T theory as um, only in, you know, polysyllabic words and impossible to understand uh, sentences. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely agree. And uh, Alex and I just realized more than a year since we started. So clearly, I thought we would, you know, I would. Congratulations. I, know. I honestly, I mean, I, maybe Alex doesn't know this, but I always imagined that we'd start out and we would just like lose steam and then just quietly 
exit <laughs> exit every space including twitter but somehow we've managed to stay stay around for more than a year so maybe we're doing something right alex <laughs> well no conversations like this are are yeah, for me absolutely. at least very in- inspiring and um you know for for my own work and just just as uh, as a a human being um so this is this is a fun space this doesn't feel like this doesn't feel like work to me um and i think that's that's very important right no it's uh, i think you uh, have definitely shared uh, created and shared a very fun space for many people including me so congrats to two of you thank you and thanks for taking time out to do this today um it's it's up close to 10:30 for both of us shahana so we are probably uh, ready to go to bed now <laughs> but thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to do this and thanks alex for uh, being such a sport and waking up a bit early i suppose thank you the pleasure is all mine but yeah thank you shahana this was this was fantastic